Hello everyone, I'm Naya Swami Asha and we're continuing our course on the essence of self-realization, the wisdom of Paramahansa Yogananda, recorded and compiled by his disciple Swami Kriyananda. I always pull out of my bookshelf here what the book looks like now because this was 20 years ago, the original version of it. Time flies. Discussing with friends recently how from the inexperienced end of 20 or 40 years to imagine that much time seems like an enormous amount of time to have lived through it because it's always now and everything just fades into a dream. You don't have that sort of onerous sense of that you've been at this for so many years. Well, perhaps that's also because of the ever-new joy of the spiritual path because I do see and come to think of it in the faces of some people a tremendous sense of how long it's been. I was amused in that context by a, an older woman I knew who was married for 60 years and after her husband died she didn't believe in the afterlife or anything else, nothing like that, but she um, had some friends who were nuns or she actually volunteered in a hospital where nuns were also working and the nuns were trying to reassure what they presumed to be the grieving widow and they said, oh don't worry dear, you'll see him again she said rather sharply, I think 60 years was quite long enough. And that was her point of view on it. <laughs> I've always enjoyed every aspect of that story, I must confess. Anyway, <clears throat> moving right along. We're on chapter 9 today, and it's not unrelated what I just said, because it's the lesson of reincarnation. Last week we talked about the law of karma, and next week we're going to talk about uh, working out karma. So this is really about reincarnation. Um, karma can't work without reincarnation. That's the great, um, they, they have to be twin realities. Well, let me put it this way, karma can work in the sense that cause and effect in human life can be observed even in a very small frame. Um, you can see that your own actions do produce certain results in your life. But for the, for the real power of the karmic law, to make itself known in such a way that it becomes an integral part of, of one's own understanding of how the world works and why. I used to give a course by that name, I'm still very fond of that name, how the world works and why. Seems like something that we really want to understand. And karma um, is, is fundamental to that. Now, what I mean by this is um, uh, is, is this part, let me, uh, just a second, uh, what I'm quoting from the first um, entry in this particular chapter, Master says, why is one person born a moron and another intelligent? And then this is the line that's relevant, God would be very unjust, wouldn't he, if he allowed things to happen, such things to happen, without a cause. Now, the point that I'm wanting to make here is that if you don't have the law of karma, and if you don't have multiple incarnations for that law to work itself out and express itself, and if you don't have God-realization as the goal, in other words, if the story isn't going anywhere, if people just look at this world and just imagine that this what's happening here is the only thing that's happening, and there's no sense of uh, continuous expansion of consciousness and ever-increasing experience of bliss, I think atheism, certainly agnosticism, and even an extremely um, intense anti-God attitude is, quite frankly, entirely justified. If there's no uh, uh, cause that is related to our free will and our own actions, if we're just living in this world and there's some all-omnipotent being who's in charge and he just kind of randomly makes these decisions and if you happen to belong to the right group and are born at the right time and all of these sorts of things, then you win his favor and if you don't, you don't. It's a kind of, uh, well, let's, I'll call it highly unsatisfactory way of looking at the world. One could insult it more deeply, but there's no point in doing so. Um, if, you, if you really start thinking deeply, about injustice and um, how this world operates, we happen to be living in a period of time where 
violence is really on the ascension. Um, goodness is also rising, but so is negativity. It's really a very, a very strange time to be living in. This is a subject about how the world works and why, which is the yugas that we're moving out of Kali Yuga, we're moving into Dwapara Yuga, that these transition zones, which is even though we're fully in Dwapara, we're still in a transition zone between the rigidity and the, the, the fixed, my way is the only way attitude, which is characteristic of Kali Yuga, and the expansive attitudes of Dwapara Yuga. So the expansive attitudes of Dwapara Yuga, definition of life as energy leading to consciousness, is coming in and people are capturing it. But the more that energy rises, the more those who are still committed to the rigidity of the forms of Kali Yuga, the more threatened they are. Because they truly recognize that all of this freedom, egalitarianism, equal opportunity, racial mixing, um, loss of denominational loyalty, a kind of amorphous, anybody can define it, spirituality, which is the first stages of Dwapara where we are now, it's, it's just stunningly threatening to the my way is the only way, my race is the right race, my culture is the superior culture of Kali Yuga. And then you add to that just the general moral disintegration of our times, and it's a pretty scary planet right now. Um, it's touched some countries more powerfully than others. But still, it's a very scary planet, and there's nothing that we can say that's really going to make it not so, because it's integral to the times that we live in. So, we can either completely lose faith in God, or we can try to understand on a deeper level what, what is the flow of energy here. And so that's where Master himself says, if these enormous inequities that we see all around us, if they're just the whim of God, that's a, a very scary, insecure, and disturbing concept of God. But if we begin to understand the law of karma, and that there is, a, a, as we were talking last week, there is this divine law which leads to harmony and leads to fulfillment, and if we find ourselves suffering and confused, there is a point of reference that we can get back to. And that point of reference is the way we were made, the purpose of life, uh, what the human body is for, all of the points that I was referring to at the beginning. Master says something extremely interesting here also in this first um, piece. And he talks about someone who's born with crippled legs. And he describes it this way that it's, it's some previous incarnation before that body was formed, before that inadequate body was formed, that individual, Master says, we call it the soul because that's just how we're used to thinking of it. Jiva is actually the correct word for the individual spark essence of spirit that continues through all your lifetimes. But that individual jiva at one point transgressed some spiritual law, and then when it was forming a new body, as Master put it, it was deprived of the consciousness of how to make strong legs. And karmic confusion, I, he doesn't really explain how you are deprived of the consciousness. But when the soul is there with its manifesting ability, forming the body in the womb, when it comes time to make the legs, it doesn't know how to make them. And that's how the, the consciousness is it's carried out. What, what might he have done in the past? Like maybe he mocked and was prejudiced against somebody who was handicapped. Maybe someone in his own family was handicapped and he treated them very badly. And he had to learn um, the compassion that's required. Um, maybe some other lesson of surrender or allowing other people to care for him. Maybe he was too closed and unwilling to let people into his life and was always walling everyone out. And so he's going to be born uh, somewhat helpless and is going to be forced to rely upon others. You can imagine many scenarios that would put someone uh, out of tune with divine law and then this would be the situation that would allow him 
potentially to learn what he needs to learn to come back into the center. Maybe a person, for example, um, depended too much on his strong body. Maybe he was a bully with that strong body and thought himself superior because he was so physically strong. And now he gets to be physically crippled. And so he gets to find out sort of what, what it's like to have to move through life without that strong body if he had misused it or he didn't appreciate it. Maybe he was given a strong body and he didn't care for it properly and allowed it to ate badly and didn't exercise, didn't, uh, didn't respond with respect. So somehow or another, in the moment when he's in the, in the womb making his new body, he can't figure out how to make the legs. It's fascinating when you think about it. Now, now you must understand, even very challenging um, situations, lifetime to lifetime, we mustn't think of them as punishments. Um, we have to think of them as learning opportunities. It was always a joke at Ananda Village, especially in the early years when so much that we did didn't work. I mean, we were just, we were so conspicuously unsuccessful in almost all of our little endeavors. Somehow the whole thing managed to move forward. But the phrase, how did it go? And the answer, it was a learning experience, <laughs> got to be very commonly used. But you see, everything is a learning experience if you take it that way. This goes back to what I was talking about some last time. What is the law of karma? Where are we going? We are building our consciousness, and our consciousness is a continuous reality from one incarnation to the next. So as Master put it, it doesn't matter what happens to us at any moment in time. The only thing that matters is what we become through what happens to us. So the egoic mind would think, oh, what a tragedy, this man was born with crippled legs. But from the soul's point of view, the soul itself could be rejoicing. Isn't this wonderful? You know, we're not going to be able to walk this lifetime, and we're going to learn so many things that we weren't able to learn when we were so powerful and got to push everyone around with our strong body. You can think of it, I mean, as retribution if you want to, but the mere thought that it's retribution in and of itself blocks um, the lesson. Because instead we just have to say, oh, something I don't know um, is now going to be open to me. Um, to say that somebody deserves something um, can mean that it's a punishment or a reward. You can think of it either way. And so uh, Master is saying that if, if these inequities took place without cause, then, then God would not be a God that anyone would love. But if these are opportunities given to us in perfect accord with exactly what we need in order to balance um, wherever we were off in the past, then right attitude is automatic and progress also um, at least is, is more likely. Um, whether it's insured or not, it depends on us because reincarnation goes on for a really long time. We can stubbornly not learn. Um, we have the free will not to learn. Um, merely to experience karma is not to be freed of karma. Sometimes it just means that you're just experiencing it and you're learning nothing. And then after a while, you begin to turn it in the direction. Whether that while is long or short is really sort of something left up to us. Um, there's another question that people are often asking, which is, if, uh, when, when, because we talk about ego as being identified with a limited reality, that's Master's words are, ego is the infinite spirit, the soul, the individual soul, identified with the temporary condition that it's living in, which is this physical body. And so the thought naturally arises in someone's mind, and people have a misunderstanding this way, oh, well, when we die, we just merge back into God. And many theologies speak of that. When my sister-in-law died and there was a Jewish funeral, there was a little pamphlet they gave us about what the Jews believe about death. I was raised in Judaism, but I didn't know what the Jews believe about death. It's sort of this, and I, the only word I can use for it is this kind of vague idea that after you die, you go back and you get to be part of God. 
but there's no, it wasn't brought to any kind of a clear focus and you didn't really know, you know, what to do about it or how to deal with it or it, 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 it was an attempt to go in that right direction. And so people often think, well, when we die, why don't we just merge back into God or we go to heaven and we get to stay there forever. That's what a lot of theologies talk about. But Master explains to us that the ego is actually an aspect of the astral, um, the astral body. And the bodies that we are attached to is not just the physical body, but it's also the astral body. The astral body is like the energy body, and the material body is that blueprint manifested out um, into physical form. When, when the jiva enters the womb, um, the, it has a blueprint of what this body is supposed to look like. And that blueprint is the pattern that's in the chakras, and the pattern that's in the chakras are the vibration of all the karma accumulated up exactly to that moment that has created a, a balancing act of vibrations between perfect God-realization and the farthest possible extremity from God-realization. Um, it doesn't mean that, that everybody's blueprint encompasses the, the full spectrum, but somewhere on that spectrum. Everybody's going to have a bottom and a top. Even an avatar making a body, the mere fact that he's making a physical body, there's that, that level of physicality in it, but there's no karmic compulsion in the making of that body. For all the rest of us, when we enter into that womb, there is karmic compulsion that has brought us there. There are, there are things that we desire, uh, or another way of putting it, there are unlearned lessons. And an unlearned lesson is any level of belief we have that draws us to anything other than the pure consciousness of God. We still believe that our happiness, that these other things are required for our happiness. And those are our thoughts and attitudes and the results of past actions that are registered in the chakras. And that is the blueprint. That's why the, the horoscope and the chakras are, are a match. The chakras are the inner reality. The stars in the heaven are the outer pattern of the inner reality. And the most uh, spiritualized form, forms of astrology um, speak of that relationship. And so the jiva also enters into the material world at the exact moment when all of the forces of the world the soul is entering into are just exactly aligned to outwardly reflect his inner reality. And that's why astrology can work. Um, the, that relationship is a little complicated, and I'm not, I don't have time to go into it now, nor am I all that knowledgeable about it. But the fact is there. So the blueprint is there, and that's what draws us to our particular, um, the particular womb, the particular parents that we choose to be part of. Uh, Master describes this in here, that at the moment of conception, a light, um, there's a flash of light. When the sperm and the ovum come together, there's a flash of light, and that light vibrates in the astral world. I mean, this world is so much more interrelated than we think. You know, there's a man and a woman in some geographic location. I mean, the whole, the whole mystery of conception, if you have any sense of awe, you, you can appreciate that. Because the number of times that, that people have sexual intercourse is so much greater than the number of times that conception takes place. It's so clearly that conception steps out of the pure physical reality of it. Yes, you can describe it as a, a, a collision of two, uh, two cells, but why do, they, why do they collide? Why does that happen? And, but then a soul has to come in there. Um, the destiny of, of one person it brings them right into that moment. And Master says the mechanics of that are that in the astral world, that vibration flashes. And those souls who, for whom it is time to incarnate, who are in tune with that vibration, see that vibration, see it, feel it, 
are drawn to it. Now, we think in physical terms. So we think that if I flash light here in California, that it can't even be seen across the street. But when we're talking about astral vibrations, everything is interconnected. And in the astral world, it's, it's like is connected to like. Uh, meaning that if the vibration happens anywhere, it, it resonates with everyone who is in tune with that vibration. Master himself said, and, and when he chanted Om, he said the vibration of Om that he sent out would, was simultaneously present all around, all around the world. It's, very, it's just a very interesting thought. Time and space is so fixed in our minds, it's hard for us to appreciate this. And even then we go into a completely other dimension. But that, that light flashes, it has a particular vibration. Those souls who are ready to incarnate, who are in tune with that uh, light and that vibration, move toward it. And Master even said in another way, they rush toward it. They're, they're, the force of it, it pulls them. And he said sometimes more than one soul gets, it, it gets into the womb because the two were in tune and they just came in together. It's, it's, I, I can't really um, wrap my mind around it more than just what I'm saying, but it's, it's fascinatingly specific how, in how it runs. And then the soul is committed. He, even that, that first cell, those first two cells coming together, the question of when life begins, Master said emphatically, that's when it begins, because unless the soul is present, there's no life. It, that a man and a woman, or a woman's body alone, can't create another life. It responds, it responds to the intention of the soul that's come into it. And then that soul is compelled by the pattern in its own chakras, whether it's going to be a man or a woman, whether, whether it's genetic, um, it, it's associated itself with certain genetic conditions, but it has chosen to associate itself with those conditions because those are the right ones for what it needs. And then it begins to act out all the karmic conditions that are there unless the consciousness uh, can't grasp certain parts of it and then all, everything begins to act itself out. Um, I've never been pregnant myself, but women who have been tell me that the personalities often are completely present almost from the very beginning and that giving birth to multiple children the personalities are you know one is so different from another because one is so different from another individuality is is part of part and parcel of all of creation now master adds another interesting piece here which he says is that you can consciously draw spiritual souls to you because the quality of that flash of light determines um, what souls are drawn to you. And he, he talks about, um, well, this is actually an autobiography of a yogi, when he tells the story of uh, Kashi, who uh, was a student in his school and was very devoted, but Kashi died. But before Kashi died, actually Master predicted that Kashi was going to die, and Kashi then begged Master after he, he went into the astral world that Master had to find him. And so Autobiography of a Yogi tells the story of Master for six months going around with the way he describes it with his hands up trying to find Kashi until finally he's standing on a certain street and he feels the vibrations of, of this soul who's now he, he can feel is in the womb of, of a woman here and he follows the vibrations right to a door and he knocks on the door. Master's dressed in the robes of a, a, a Swami and so he says to the man, you know, is your wife pregnant? And yes, and she's a, a few months pregnant. And because he's a sadhu, this man says, how do you know? So then Master explains about uh, that this is Kashi and that he's going to be reborn to you and this is what he's going to be like. And he will look in this way and he will have a spiritual disposition. And of course, all of that turns out to be true. And then Master describes later after he was in America, when Kashi was uh, in his late teens, he wrote to Master and said, you know, I, I want to continue to follow the spiritual life that you started with me. And so Master sent him to a certain yogi in the Himalayas, where Master writes, to this day, Kashi continues um, to be there with that yogi. Now, that was where the couple, uh, it wasn't exactly what I started to say, that's where the couple 
um, was the right birth, and Master was able to confirm that this is the child who's going to be born to you. Now, Master also talked about a couple who wanted to have uh, a spiritual child, and Master instructed them. I think that's what he writes in here. He says, refrain from having sexual intercourse for six months, and he showed, uh, he, he, he talked to them about, you know, the, 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 this particular soul as a spiritual vibration, and pray that this soul come to you. And the couple followed Master's advice exactly, and when they had intercourse, they held their consciousness uplifted, and that very soul was drawn to them. Now, we don't necessarily have a guru to say, here's your child, here's your child, like this. But if, we're, if we want to um, raise children, want to, to invite people into our home who have an uplifted vibration, then we need to make sure that the invitation we send out is consistent with that intention. Now, of course, the vibration that you send out will be the, the sum total of who you are. So it's not as if you can just suddenly sort of fake this, or that if you were not aware of, of the process, that somehow you made a terrible mistake. But what Master is saying is that there are these are divine laws that we can work with. I mean, we think in our sort of egoicness that the child who comes to us belongs to us. But as Swamiji put it really beautifully once, he said, the parents create the vehicle for a soul to live out its destiny. But the parents create the vehicle, they do not create either the soul or its destiny. And Swami jokingly, but only half jokingly, says when you have a child, you invite, as he puts it, a perfect stranger to come and live with you for the next 20 years, and you're obligated to take care of him or take care of her, and you don't really know who you're getting, and you don't. You're trusting the karmic law. But Master says in here, that um, positive feelings, of course, are, are attractive. And we find our friends from past incarnations and our spiritual family especially is very powerful and we meet each other again and again, lifetime after lifetime. But Master also points out that aversion is also very, has a lot of magnetism. And Master makes the chilling statement that sometimes people who, have, who are very disharmonious with each other incarnate into the same families so they can fight it out at close quarters. I mean, it's just an awful statement. But many families really, there's as much aversion um, as there is love. There's a kind of instinctive love, but the people may not necessarily get along at all. Sometimes they intensely don't get along. That's because they broke, they transgressed the karmic law at some point, and they developed this strong aversion to someone, and so now they get to, they get the opportunity to see if they can learn to love everyone in the right way, and get over that um, in erroneous way of thinking. A woman I know gave birth to twins, and uh, one of them she loved, and one of them she, she intensely disliked from the beginning. I mean, what a karma for everybody involved. And when there's the mother, she's got two babies, and one of them she's very drawn to, and one of them she has, does not want to be close to. And it acted itself out for the entire life of the, the mother and both of those twins. It's just the, uh, the past karma between them was very, very intense. Now, people make a grave mistake, and this is moving into what we'll talk about next time, but it's still part of this. People make a grave mistake in using the concept of, of previous lifetimes and reincarnation from the past as an excuse. Well, you know, I have such bad karma with that person. Naturally, I react this way. Uh, I was in a situation with a, a woman at Ananda Village, and we had a very difficult karma between us. We were both deeply devoted to Ananda and deeply devoted to Swami and deeply devoted to the spiritual path, but we just had some rock, a rocky past between us, our past lives. And one way or another, <clears throat> sort of some details, literal details, memories of past lives, psychic interpret interpreters, you know, a lot of facts began to come to the, the fore. And 
I think most of those facts were valid, and neither of us uh, had much to be proud of, and we both had a great deal to be ashamed of in terms of just behaving really, really badly. But as a consequence, we were pretty darn mad at each other by the time we met in this lifetime, and uh, just did not have a high opinion of one another. And it began to be like, well, self-justifying. That's all. It's the only word for it. It was self-justifying. Naturally, I feel stinky towards you. Naturally, I have a rotten attitude. But I'm completely justified because look at all the things that you did. And Swamiji saw that building and he, he saw that we were, not, we were not learning the lesson. We weren't taking this karmic opportunity to get back in harmony with divine law. In fact, we were just taking this karmic opportunity to swing, you know, farther over to the other side, which the result of that, of course, was being that we would just get to keep doing this. And what you have to reach at a certain point in your, um, in your life is just, it's not worth it to me. The, the effort to change my attitude and shift my consciousness, and which always seems formidable when we're on this side of it and have to start doing it, is still preferable to continuing the misery that I'm in at this point. And we don't make changes until the perceived difficulty of making the change is less than the perceived difficulty of continuing the ignorance. So Swami drew us together and he, he just said the most obvious thing. He said, neither of you could ever behave that badly ever again. You've learned. We hadn't yet learned to love each other, although by the grace of God we have. But at that point we hadn't learned to love each other, but we had individually um, gone beyond uh, the kind of egregious actions that we'd both been guilty of in the past. It's progressive, you see. Individually we'd become far better people, and we're never going to fall so far back as to take the kind of revenge that we had both taken on each other. But we still hadn't reached the point where we could uh, forgive one another, trust one another, um, forget the past sufficiently to actually look at the person and see only the present and not all those memories behind us. And that's what Master said about we have those kinds of aversions and we're drawn to each other and we have to face it. We have to work it out. We can't just, we don't, we don't just get away free. I often think, you know, what happens to the, the man who was the torture? What happens to the Nazi prison guard? What happens to the person who's tortured to death and uh, dies furious? Like, where does all that energy go? Well, that energy just stays with you and you get to act it out again. Someone asked Master, it's written in here, someone who's very, very prejudiced and hateful, let's say, toward black people in America. And the, the friend asked, he said, does that person get to be born as a black person in America next lifetime? Master says, essentially, of course. Whatever you judge harshly, whatever you don't have charity for, then if you continue to reject that reality, then you have to learn to accept it. And of course, one of the ways to learn to accept it is to have to live through it. I mean, it's they, the American Indians used to say you have to walk a mile in the other man's moccasins before you um, say whether or not he's a worthy person. You have to feel what it is like from his side. Now, the whole thing is just delicious because if somebody who dies with a, a fury, let's say, against dark-skinned people, and then he suddenly finds himself in the body, and that body has dark skin, you can just imagine how many different forces will play and how complex this can become. And his own mother and the people around him, all of these people that he'd rejected in his heart, suddenly he's having to love them. Now ideally, he'll just enter into that and the next time that he's white, he will have an instinctive natural sympathy for black people. This is how we learn. I mean, how else are we going to learn when you think about it? We don't learn from being told. Everybody can say as much as they want that people of another race or another culture are just like us, but they don't look like us and they don't behave like us and they don't talk like us. 
but you get to live through all of those different ways of being and then gradually you have this this kind of collective memory um, when you go to certain cultures it feels very familiar to you I actually finally realized when I spent more time in India I've never been to Africa but I suspect I would have a similar experience there I've never looked right to myself that's the only way I can put it even to this day when I look in the mirror of course this is not uncommon but I'm always a little surprised it just never really has looked right to me and when I began to look at a lot of Indian faces because I was in India for weeks and even months at a time that looked right to me and it's just it's just a memory um, the the way people move and act and the way that country feels the way it smells the way the weather moves just everything about it feels much more natural to me these are past life memories and on one hand it makes you at home in another culture but it also makes you realize how rather random all of this is and one man uh, spoke to me about this he was an American who went to live in India and he said when he first moved there he was advised by another American lived there who said as much as possible delay your return to America for as long as you can and that man actually stayed in India for five years without coming back to America and he said it helped enormously in just realizing that this is the way things are and the way things are is entirely arbitrary it's like in America they're one way in India they're in another way in Africa they're a different way in Italy they're a different way but it's all just the same world just playing itself out and the more deeply you see in our hearts that we can know this the more in harmony we are with divine law because divine law tells us that all souls are equal we are all children of God they were all just following the karma that we have to follow they were all just loved equally by God and the way we begin to experience that is we get to try out all these different things oh look being crippled isn't all that different from being strong being a Jew isn't all that different you know from being a Muslim really it's, I have a mother who loves me I love my wife my children depend on me all of these other things are just details and we have enough of those experiences building up now people often ask why don't we re remember our past lives master says it's a it's a kindness to us that we don't remember he said it's hard enough having to carry um, the the memory of all the sadnesses and disappointments or the times we didn't live up to our high ideals or all the attachments that we just have in one lifetime he said imagine just having to bear the burden of all those lifetimes all of those experiences if we could remember them I w we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning the burden would be overwhelming so it's the way the world is made the ego identifies with the body that it's presently inhabiting now the more we have um, expanded our consciousness beyond the ego the more in fact we do remember you see because what blocks our ability to to remember is that we're so deeply identified with where we are right now that we literally can't imagine just literally we can't imagine we can't imagine speaking another language being another gender um, living in another age it all seems foreign to us but the more we have learned to identify with the inner spirit that's moving through all those bodies the more we are at home all over the world the more we spontaneously uh, unite our spirit with everyone that we meet and the more we can literally remember because we are we're not so narrow in our self-definitions that we can't just easily shift it Swami Kriyananda of course was superb at being able to relate to any culture wherever he was and he ended up being able to speak eight languages and languages came relatively easy to him and he was often thought to be a native of whatever country he was in because he just forgot um, where he had come from and embraced where he was and of course that's the characteristic of someone who's born into it 
they identify with it completely. But Swamiji would just be able to move from one to the next, from one to the next. And this is how the masters um, are able to be in the world so easily, because all they see is the divine power there. Master writes about the astral world, um, saying that the astral world is right here. It's not physically somewhere else because it's not physical. It's a more subtle vibration behind this world. And so Master said he lived he lived as much in the astral world as he did in the physical world because he, excuse me just a moment, Well, fortunately, it passed away. My mother um, sneezed so loudly she could be heard by the neighbors. So you really don't want me sneezing into this microphone. Thank you for sparing all of us that. Um, Master said he could see the astral world as easily as he could see this world. And this world is like um, the grosser projection of the astral world. If you can think about this very subtle vibration, and then it begins to become more, less and less subtle, and finally it's here. But for this world to exist at all, that astral energy is always behind it. For us to exist in our physical bodies, the, the, the spiritual, the energetic and the spiritual is also vibrating with us at all times. People who have psychic sight can often see that. They can see your aura. They can hear the vibratory sound that you're making. They can see your chakras, whatever it might be. Um, there's, there's psychic ability and there's spiritual ability. They're slightly different. Masters was completely spiritual. He could see all levels of reality at the same time. And he said, you know, the astral worlds are just much more beautiful and much more subtle than the worlds that we live in now. And that's why um, he, he would spend time there <laughs> because uh, he would be everywhere simultaneously. Swamiji talks about the first years of his life as a child. He was in the physical world, but I mean, he was he was in his physical body, but but he saw the astral world more than he saw the physical world. So everything was very beautiful to him. Now, um, the whole question of you know being in the astral world, what is it like after we die? I was starting to say earlier that merely killing the physical body does not kill the ego because the ego remains attached to the astral body, and. Master describes that the astral worlds are more subtle. So individuals who have more subtle, refined consciousness can really enjoy the astral worlds. Um, We can enjoy more beautiful, subtle music, more beautiful, subtle sights and sounds. Um, But people who are very materialistic, Master described, he said, they, they don't even wake up in the astral world. They don't know how to see that kind of subtlety. Now, that's, that sounds complex, but it's not really hard to understand. I watch it on a regular basis in the temple that we have here in Palo Alto where we offer the Ananda services and so on. Many people will drop in to see whether they like it or not. And sometimes people come in and they, they just, there's just not enough happening in our church. There's no electrified um, rock and roll, you know, music, there's no drum set, there's no bass guitar, there's no sort of loud clapping, dancing like this, and it's just, it's it's so dull, there's nothing going on. Other people will come in who are attuned to the vibration on which our church is happening, and it'll feel to them like this just, this magnificent, uh, uh, overwhelming, uplifting vibration, and it's just People see different realities and vibrate with, with different things. And so those folks will go down the street to the church that's just really, you know, rocks out every Sunday and they really get what they want from that experience. Now, I'm not saying anybody's going to any church anywhere has got some subtlety going on with them. But you see, people experience things depending on what their own vibrations are. So it's possible in the, in the astral world you go to that astral world which corresponds to your own vibration. Um, if you think that what happens to you after you die is that you sit with angels playing harps and float on clouds, as I understand it, you can do that. You'll sing in the heavenly chorus and you'll sit at the feet of God 
in the way that you think it's going to happen because that vibration is real and it'll manifest for you. If your understanding of the astral worlds is more about inner states of consciousness and um, subtle inner perceptions, then you'll, you'll go to the vibration where that's happening. But if your concept of reality you know, requires steak for dinner and a good cigar afterwards and a, a little bit of whiskey before you go to bed or a lot of whiskey before you go to bed and just everything in the physical world is your reality, when your physical body dies, nothing happens. And Master said, you'll literally, you'll just sleep through your whole astral experience. Or you'll wake up a little bit, and there'll be sort of a gray mist, is how he described it. You won't be able to see or feel or hear anything, and eventually you'll find yourself back in a physical body. And when you're back in a physical body, then you'll begin to wake up again, because this is a world I can relate to. Master says, however, if you're very evil, that during your astral sojourn, you'll have nightmares and experiences of demons and all of the, the the physical body as they describe it dulls our experiences. We think it intensifies them but in fact it dulls them. But when the physical body is gone and you're just in the pure vibration of your own consciousness, if your vibration is dark and evil then you get to experience that. The most um, death and return stories are beautiful stories. But um, there's a few books that have a few of, of ones that are not at all beautiful, where people who are living very bad lives uh, went to the other side and they experienced the consequences of their own negativity and darkness. And because these were death and return stories, they had the opportunity to make it better. But not everyone does. If you're hateful and evil, you're outside of divine law and you get to experience that um, until you look to the light. Now there's another part of it that's really important here is, as Master describes it, people in the astral world are really, really busy. And uh, Master even said that angels are, angels are making things happen all the time in this world. They're helping people in this world and also higher beings in the astral world are, are trying to help those who are trapped at, at lower levels. So when you talk about somebody evil being trapped in his own evil, he's just getting the consequences of his own behavior. But there are souls who are more advanced, who spend their astral time trying to help uplift them. I'll, I'll give you a, a story. It's, this is between the worlds, but it's very illustrative of how this would work. This was not about an evil person, but a man who allowed himself to be trapped in in uh, guilt, which is a, a form of darkness for sure. Now this is the story about a man, in, in a friend of mine, um, who had the capacity to see somewhat into the astral worlds. And he would, from this side, he would often help people who, in astral worlds who were a little caught. And he actually would do it, um, his, his situation was that sometimes buildings or apartments or places astral beings would be caught there like ghosts and he would help those astral beings to move on. I don't have that kind of sight. This was a man of great integrity and the little intuition I have makes me feel that what he was saying was the truth. But it's apocryphal in any case. He actually came to, this was in our apartment, and he came into our apartment and there was a, a place in that apartment that didn't feel evil, but it felt different. There was just something odd about the energy there. So I invited, my friend's name was Bill, Bill in to, to look at it. And uh, he, he had to be alone in order to do that. But he spent the time there, and this is what he told me. There was an American Indian, a, a brave warrior, who had gone to battle and been utterly defeated by the white man, and that he was not able to protect his people, and he was specifically not able to protect his own daughter. And the tragedy of that last battle in which he himself was killed left him with such a, a, an ex exaggerated sense of guilt and responsibility for the fate of his whole people. Now you see how we're shifting a little bit, you see, outside of divine law because is this one warrior in charge of everything 
or does God have a plan and that we're all acting through this plan? Even if circumstances were tragic, are tragic circumstances just a prelude to necessary learning? It all comes back to your feeling and your thought about God. So this warrior, this is how Bill explained it, was trapped. And he was, he was literally sitting there on his horse, looking down. Just He'd gone into the astral world with this sense of exaggerated personal responsibility for everything. Everything had gone badly. And now he felt compelled to suffer. So he was sitting there suffering. And, you know, when you think about it, he'd been suffering for centuries. And why, he, why his astral form was in my apartment is something I don't understand. That part of it I never got clear. Did the battle take place on this land, conceivably? And everything got built up around it, and he was, he was attached to the spot? Maybe so, because the physical and the astral, the astrals, they're on different vibrations. And so here's the rest of it. His daughter was not... His, his daughter died... But she didn't die with this horrible, with this very dark consciousness. She just died, and then she just went on. She saw the astral world, she entered into it, she went forward. Presumably she even reincarnated, and I guess some fragment of her consciousness remained. Because he's looking down, she's above him, trying to get his attention. For centuries? Trying to get his attention. It's all right, Dad. I'm fine. Look, it just had to happen. We're all going forward. And she had just gone through the experience and learned what she was supposed to learn. Charity, forgiveness, love. We all did our best. It was in the divine plan. Whatever the lessons were. And she was vibrating just a little higher than he was. She was able... um, High vibrations can go down into dark vibrations. Dark vibrations can't get into higher vibrations. You have to change your consciousness to rise. So Bill got the Indian's attention and got him to look up. That was all that was required. He just had to look up. And as soon as he looked up, he saw his daughter. And when he saw his daughter, he just went off to be with her. The power of love drew him right into her. Wow. So... Other stories that people tell about this is that whenever there are people suffering in this, these dark astral hells, there's always light beings there trying to help them. This one woman who had a death and return story about the astral world, um, she, committed, she tried to kill herself unsuccessfully because she returned, but she went into a death state. She tried to kill herself because it was suicide and because she suicided in a very dark way she went to this very dark world and she said she saw people there and it was it was always the same they were always looking down and she saw people who judging from their clothes had been there a really 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 long time and they had just held died with this thought and there they were holding it like this and then and she said and she she starts into that place herself and you know just horror stricken and she's just sinking into this blackness and then the thought of, of the idea of Jesus came to her. She hadn't been like a devout Christian or anything like that. But she remembered the reality of Jesus. And as soon as she remembered the reality of Jesus, she raised her eyes. She became aware that there was a galaxy of light beings right above the darkness. And just that little thought caused her to connect with them. And then she started coming She went up into the light and then eventually came back into her body. Wow. You know, so these are all the, um, this, this is the path that we're all on. And this is karma, reincarnation, and the astral world, that these are the uh, lessons that we're all trying to learn. And while we're here and can exercise our free will, it behooves us to be very, very vigilant. You know, if we think that we can just have mean, selfish thoughts and do cruel and unkind things to people and it'll just go away because nobody was looking, not at all. It, it's a vibration in our consciousness and sooner or later it will have to be resolved. But as soon as we begin to try to resolve, as soon as we begin to meditate, as soon as we begin to think about 
um, that that the the beautiful higher vibrations that surround us, and to to disengage ourselves from this fixed identity with these dark and limited realities, even if we have done terrible things. Um, we've all done terrible things. The past lives of all men, Sri Teshwar says, are dark with many shames. And Swami Kriyananda said to him, my friend and I, he said, you're not capable of that anymore. It's behind you. And yes, it was unfortunate that, that you did it, but now what you have to do is just don't be that way anymore. Just let that vibration go and put yourself in the vibration that you want to be in. That's why we live in communities. That's why we meditate. That's why we chant and sing and love God and become disciples. We are constantly trying to awaken within us these higher vibrations um, so that we can live in them now, so that when we shed this body, we'll merge into those uh, more elevated universes. What brings us back, you see, to the physical world is the desires that can only be fulfilled on the physical plane, certain kinds of relationships, um, certain sensual experiences, ownership of physical things, money, all those sorts of things. Pure desires, as Master calls them. Desires for, for beautiful, refined music, um, for, for refined uh, visual realities, for selfless love, above all, the desire to be in tune with God and, and to serve the Guru and to be in tune with the Guru and uh, to be an instrument of light into this world. These desires are in harmony with divine law and the, the duality ceases at that point. You see, when we want to hate someone, we're, we're in this duality. When we want to own this or get that or get revenge or have this person love me, we're, we're trying to take the world of duality and fix it according to my will. When we want to be in the vibration of God, we're stepping out of the world of duality, and that's where it stops. So even though the desire for God is still a desire. It's the desire that ends all other desires. And progressively, as we move toward it, the more refined, the more selfless, the more, um, the more what, what we do and what we desire resembles the divine, the more we move out of the realm of karma and reincarnation altogether and become simply centered here. As Master said, if we have that very refined vibration, we can, we may, spend a very, very long time in the astral world. And we, maybe we devote ourselves to helping others. Maybe we simply enjoy. And I remember when a, a dear friend of mine was uh, in the last weeks of her life, and she had a great passion for beauty. Her, her dedication in life was to make beauty. She was part of our congregation here and on holidays and so on. She would just come in and transform the entire temple into just a fairyland. She was marvelous at it. And, and she lived for that, for beauty. And Swamiji, sitting next to her uh, a, few, a few weeks, perhaps, or a few months before she died, he said to her like this, now don't get too attached to the astral world. <laughs> he said, you're going to feel very at home there. He said, but remember, even the astral world is not God-realization. And so Master said, Refined people can spend a long time in the astral world, but often they don't because they realize they still have material desires to work out and they're, instead of just going on a long astral vacation, devotees are eager to get back to this world, not out of a desire to be in this world, but out of a desire to learn everything that ha still has to be learned so that we can be free forever. You know, Once we get this idea of karma and reincarnation, Far from binding us, it's the doorway to absolute freedom. And it, it, it makes so much harmonious sense out of everything. It takes your time span and elongates it. And it takes, it takes all the anxiety out. You know, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to get it right sooner, I hope, rather than later. But if I will just, as long as I don't quit, as long as I hold to my spiritual aspirations, as long as I keep before me this divine goal, as Master said, once the desire for God sincerely enters your heart, 
its fulfillment is an absolute certainty. Isn't that a wonderful thought? God bless you.